but the diving is uh, incredible. I saw some of the, uh, yeah, it's Indian Ocean. It's just, uh, from what I can see, it's just uh, supposed to be awesome. So, And there's cave diving. There's caves on Madagascar. Yeah, there's an exploration project on the caves of Madagascar. Hook us up. Let's uh, let's, let's uh, talk to the government, see if they bring us in. We're a very famous, we're a very famous podcast, you know. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. The um, sea caves, are they... No, they're freshwater caves on the island, yeah. That's why this one's gonna this one will be fun. So we'll kinda end cave diving week on a wild, crazy adventure. Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast with your host, James. And Brando. The other host, Brando. And Brando. Wait, oh, wait let me do wait, that wait, again. Let's, let's do it all over again. Because <laughs> I'll, I'll do my new nickname. <laughs> Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast with your host, Jamesy. And Brando. And we're back at you <laughs> with week four. I can't believe four weeks of... of Cave diving has well, it is a month. Come so fast. I know the National end. Of, so this is the end of month. end of cave diving month already. We're gonna have to get back to that regular old diving stuff here next week. I but hope that we really can make it National Cave Diving Month. It's just something we made it's up. It's pretty done. It is now. Well, it, and if it I, takes and I off, that, I love do we get some be, kind of? I love that it's gonna be the end of January, beginning of February. It's gonna yes. be the cave diving month. It is. Well, typically that's when I would have been down in Florida back in the uh, my. 2000 early 2000s i would have been down in florida yeah these were the these were the long weekend running running days yeah a couple times i was there for a couple weeks or a week at a time but it was getting tired of the snow let's load up a trailer and go yeah well you wanted to do wrecks all summer because you know the great lake charter season is summer and caves all winter it's a beautiful beautiful combo it's not a bad life i mean it's a little jet setty in the sense of you've got to do a lot of traveling but minus the you just jet, go live. But minus the jet i mean you're i mean this that's all like real diving with yeah well that's the the bad part suit. is minus the jet <laughs> same dry suit same doubles yeah you're still staying up on it it would be nice just you just move there for the winter spend your winter i know there's a couple shout out to my buddy dave sheard and kelly rogers out there who do that toronto and then down to florida so Florida in the winter, Toronto in the summer. Once this once this podcast takes off, I think it's that's destined for us. Uh yeah. Oh, I'm not gonna say the Great Dive Lodge. So, as <laughs> I'm currently do, going over the books, yeah. 
great dive lodge on the Suwannee River. No, there's uh, there's definitely things we could do, but so in this last little uh, last little week of cave diving, we've got a, a great story, a great adventure that I think really brings together almost all the little things that we've been doing on this podcast. It's a little bit old scuba story. It's a little bit big fish because it has to do with good old Captain Cousteau, good old Jacques. It's a it's a little bit um, bridging that gap between the old and the new, and how how we do things today versus what we how we did things in the olden days, and what we've learned along the way. So there's a lot of good education in it. A really exciting adventure tale that defies the dangers of early cave diving and the lessons learned along the way. And I don't want to get, I don't want to give away the ending. So. That's all I can say. And it's a little bit uh, rock and roll and a little bit country. So let's uh, let, let's get back to talking about cave diving a little bit. There was a group established in the United Kingdom called the Cave Diving Group back in the 1930s that were going to explore some flooded caves. And uh, the, the first dive that they made was in late 1936 using a homemade dry suit that was fed from a modified uh, bicycle pump. Diving in old Swilden's Hole. I guess that counts. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think how deep or how much they really explored. I guess you are de- jumping in, into a cave. Right. So, uh, and I mean, this was an old, this is, uh, you know, they were using a hard hat. A wee bit, a, a sport of cave so diving they, with me mates. A sport so of they slowly cave. started to build, you know, in and around this World War II era, this little bit of a cave diving community. That's pre-World War. But and yeah. then, uh, you know, in 1946, it kind of got going again. Once and, uh, now they were, got the Aqualung going. Now they were using these uh, rubber frogman diving suits that could provide some better insulation. They were using these oxygen rebreathers and started to put together a system, the Aflolon. Aflolon. So they started to put together... I thought they the, were Brits. It's, it's, it's an acronym, Aflolon system. Oh, You've Which a stands French for French accent there because it's spelled like <laughs> Aflolon, <laughs> but it's a Aflolon. I'm not sure they pronounce it differently. But apparatus for laying out line and underwater navigation, and uh, that consisted of some lights, a line reel, compass, notebook, batteries, and more. And uh, the early days, it was basically just uh, bottom walking which they considered to be less dangerous than swimming because they didn't have any of this buoyancy control stuff that we use nowadays. And then they did have this obvious depth limit because of uh, they were using these oxygen rebreathers. But we get to this story of all these like caves. Like So these guys were exploring these interesting caves over there in, in the UK. And then there was you know caves all throughout the world that have intrigued the minds of mere men for centuries and all kinds of myths and stories about creatures and fairies and all kinds of magical things around these caves that have spurred up all kinds of tales and fables and interesting stories. And eventually, obviously, the curiosity of man is going to eventually dig at somebody long enough that he's going to say, I'm going to get to the answer of it. Nice. Which leads us into this. Which leads us into this story. French cave. So near the French city of Avignon, there's a famous spring called the Fountain of Vaucluse. Now, this is a story that Jacques wrote about in his book, The Silent World. And there's another book that we're we're using today called The Cave Divers, which was written by uh, Robert Burgess. 
Did he right. write all the stories, or did he just assemble a bunch of stories, or assemble and he, rewrite them? Yeah, yeah, he assembled okay. and rewrote all these. Okay. He, he wrote a bunch of bunch of books. He was actually from yeah. Mi- he was actually from Michigan and retired down to Florida, and then yeah, he did a lot of a long uh, Great Lakes ago, yeah. and Great Lakes mm-hmm. and uh, and Florida cave diving. But in it, he recounts the same story. He does does a really good job of of laying it out from from a little bit of a different perspective. So it's always different when you're not there. That that is true. <laughs> Because he gives a little bit more history into yeah, it yeah, as yeah. well. He's not, it's not just yeah. the story of the dive. Yeah. So the fountain of Vaucluse lies in a, in a crater at the bottom of a 600-foot limestone cliff beside the River Sorge. Now, mostly throughout the year, this is a, just a very beautiful little reflecting pond in really calm, clear, still water. But come around the time of March, there's this great phenomenon that occurs and all this water comes spewing out of this spring is it like a geyser and not a geyser just a a heavy heavy strong rapids of water okay i'm mostly asking for our viewers so think um think like raging rapids of water rustling rapids a surge surging rapids of water so for five weeks that little uh light little pond becomes a torrent and the spring becomes a violent fountain of raging waters that boils forth from the mountain this strange phenomenon occurs every year for centuries no one has known what the cause of this wild upheaval of water was so many french poets have written tales of fountain nymphs and maidens and young girls and all these um wonderful stories over the years well i'm curious here the the one of the big poets was Frederick Mistral or Maestro. Frederick Mistral. Mistral, thank oui. you. Uh, is he who the Mistral Reg is named after? That's a think? good. Uh, that's a good question. I'm not. I'm not really sure about I'm that. Gonna, I'm gonna. As we're look reading, it up. I'm gonna look it up. Look at the answer machine. Maybe it's in there. The Mistral is a strong, cold northwesterly wind that blows from southern France into the Gulf of Lyon. So that's probably what he means because it's a wind breathing. You, this thing breathes like a Mistral. So Frederick Mistral, yes, wrote that one day a traveling minstrel fell asleep beside the fountain of Vaucluse. The nymph of the fountain appeared as a beautiful young girl, and taking the hand of the minstrel, led him down between the crystal clear walls of Vaucluse's liquid corridors to a wonderful meadow, lushly carpeted with supernatural flowers. And there they stopped, before seven huge diamonds, When the girl lifted one of them, a powerful torrent of water flowed forth. Here, she said, is the secret of the spring, and I alone keep it. To increase the flow, I have but to lift the diamonds. When I lift the seventh and the last diamond, the fountain rises to the fig tree, whose roots drink but once a year. So over the years, scientists and speleologists tried to answer the mystery of this cave and tried to figure out what was going on, where all this water came from. Even to the point where they uh, got to uh, putting a fluorescent dye into the water and tried to follow it and, and figure out where all this water was going from. And Well, just to point out, that's what they do now. Yeah, they probably did it back then as, the, you know, hey, let's just try this, but it's practice. It's common practice right now. Well, I mean, they do it everywhere. There's underwater freshwater caves. They want to find the, where, it, where it originates, where it travels to, uh, what affects the local say farming agriculture when they start throwing well whenever you put anything into the ground even when you you know what are you going to do with your garbage you have a garbage heap somewhere or you know like a dump 
things seep into the ground, and we know that yeah. you know going on here. So and then all the different fertilizers. Yeah, the fertilizers from the agriculture. Where That's does that really, go? Really, what they were worried about. So yeah, so, especially in Florida. Well, you look yeah, at Florida, yeah. the karst plain there. And karst just means limestone. So the caves are formed in the limestone by uh, the dissolution of limestone. In other words, what happens is water, rainwater and whatnot, falls onto the ground, of course. And if you've got fertilizer and things like that mixing in with that rainwater, as you've watered that, you have a huge amount of land that you've watered and and fertilized, well, all that stuff's going to seep in through the ground into the limestone that's underneath. And as it's seeping through, normally just the water would pick up uh, carbon dioxide and become like a carbonic acid solution. And it would dissolve out parts of the, the limestone. And that's what creates this cave system underwater or under the, underground, really. And it's filled with water, right? Beautiful, filtered, crystal clear water for the most part. So what they're worried about is they're also using that as their drinking water because it's really highly filtered and it's super clean. I mean, you've been there, right? Yes, yeah. You can basically, you know, take your rag out and gulp it. It's it's crystal clear. And that's what a lot of bottled spring water comes from as well. But if there's just a ton of fertilizer, nitrates and all that other stuff that they use for fertilizer in the water, that's it not affects, good for yeah, so it affects so, all yeah. of them. So they so want to so, find where it comes from and goes yeah, to so it. Yeah, so they were doing these dye tests out in Florida just to see the, the effects of where all this groundwater was going. And they did find that it was coming out through all these caves that ended up being the source of all this drinking water. And they were doing the same thing back in France, just trying to figure out the mystery behind this amazing the surge, fountain, yeah. The surge of this, this fountain. Thanks, Mr. Schwartz, sure. for that lesson. I don't think it was a good lesson. As a matter of fact, I, I hesitate to talk a lot about it because there's a lot of specifics. Well, this scientific study, you know, was a huge mystery to the people at the time. And then in 1878, a helmet and hose diver from Marseille named Ottenelli decided that the only way to answer the mystery was to dive down into the throat of the fountain and see what he could find. So Ottenelli was lowered down into the basin and started started uh, down the tunnel. About 30 feet below the surface, he encountered a large triangular boulder that blocked his way. He squeezed past it as he continued downward another 100 feet to the point of inky blackness where some cold fear had crept over him. He returned to the surface with news that he had reached the bottom of the fountain, but still had no answer. In the course of Ottenelli's dive, his zinc boat overturned and sank down the rocky corridor into the depths of the spring, but he never saw it again. Apparently, he had just passed it in the dark. Well, this is the story being told, yeah. Now, you know there's no zinc boat. Correct. Oh, okay. I yeah, just yeah, wanted to make sure yeah, you get in. Yeah. Yeah. In 1938, another Marseille hard hat diver, one Signor Negri, decided to see what he could find in the fountain. He was hard hat? He oh, was yeah, a, he was, was hard hat. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. So Negri descended into the spring, and there was spectators everywhere uh, to watch this huge, yes. amazing event. And he was loaded up with a microphone and communications yes. and kind of broadcast as he was walking down telling the story of all the interesting things that he saw along the way, captivating the audience. And when he got in, he reported details of him descending down to 120 feet. And he says that, oh, hey, there's uh, Otanelli's zinc boat as he passed the boat. And eventually he couldn't go any further because his air hose was dragging and got tangled up and uh, he had to uh, he was afraid it was going to dislodge and he had to turn around and head back yeah the story the story and well Jacques didn't I guess he's just going by hearsay too was there was a rock that was teetering that was literally teetering so he was worried it was going to crush his air hose so he went back again a big spectacle yes drew drew crowds of, of, of spectators
Raiders, but at the end, once again, no answer. Yeah, and old Senor Negri, here, here's the thing. So Jacques and his crew, and he brings, like, the French Navy, lots of equipment. It's a big production when Jacques goes to explore this cave, and uh, they try to get a hold of old Senor Negri, and he wouldn't he wouldn't speak to them, and they couldn't figure it out why. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do shortly. <laughs> exactly. So, yes, of course, uh, eventually, as, as we know, those of our listeners who listen to the good old episode two of The Big Fish know that in 1940s, good old Jacques invented the aqualung. And in the uh, summer of 1946, during the quieter, laid down, more placid time of, of the good old Fontaine de Vaucluse, they came up from Toulon with the, the French, a uh, bunch of French naval officers with their new, fancy, unusual diving equipment. And they were going to give this a go and see if they could figure out the answer to this fountain of Vaucluse. Yeah, you should point out, I don't know if it says in there, but they came pretty well armed. They came with a portable compression chamber. They came with uh, uh, compressors for well, filling yeah, bottles. A, okay, yeah, that, that part's okay. in there, yeah. So the divers were Guy Morandier, Jean Pinard, Maurice Farg, Philippe Tallier, Frédéric Dumas, and Jacques-Yves Cousteau. The young divers had intended to solve the mystery of this fountain once and for all. Now, on the pre-dawn dive that morning uh, to Vaucluse, Tallier felt his companions were not as exuberant about making the dive as they usually had been when they were diving at sea. Tallier himself was apprehensive and made a list of seven possible dangers that might confront them. Only seven. Seven. These seven dangers. No, he probably was like, beware of these 12 dangers. These seven dangers. (laughs) That joke never gets old. Never gets old. (laughs) So, fear of the unknown and their instinctual dislike for diving underground. So, keep in mind, so this was a time when exploring under the sea was still very mysterious in itself out in open water, let alone going into these dark caves where uh, you you lose sight of going back. So, they didn't have any of the protocol that we would have now for exploring a new world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This was all extreme exploration, like you'd like to feel like you're doing in caves now, but all the protocol and equipment's all developed and... You're, and you're just you're following the yellow brick line. Yes, <laughs> well, back. to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. Physical exhaustion in the cold 54 degree water that would quickly sap their strength. Now, 54 degrees—that's pretty chilly water, for, especially when you consider what they were wearing for exposure protection, yeah. which was virtually nothing. Yeah, compared to what we have today, it was lacking. 54 degrees today. I'm my heated vest is on. <laughs> you're the wrong person to ask about this cold stuff. Although I'm getting there with you. I don't like any warm. Poor visibility in the absolute darkness where flashlights would be of little value if they even worked at all. Well, they always had those magnesium torches that on the beginning of many of their specials. Right, they right. Just, uh, <laughs> no, they didn't bring any of those on. You're going to see. You're going to see. They should have. It would look cool for the video. We need to get some of those. I, I'm telling you, I've been looking for them. Really? You can't find any of those? Okay. I haven't been looking. At, uh, I haven't I been looking, looking at that hard. Okay. <laughs> it would have sounded better if you didn't. If you if you didn't we question it. <laughs> All right. Never question accidents. The rope might break, and they would be lost in an uncharted maze. Yeah. Well, this goes back to you know what our basic five rules, the golden rules of uh, cave diving. You know, and of course, num- number one is always have a continuous guideline. So the key word being continuous. 
and use use something that won't break. Yeah, and they're and using they, the guidelines. They knew that yeah. then. You know, yeah. they needed to be tethered, and they're but they're tethered in a little bit more in a way like the typical ice diver. Yeah. is tethered right, from, and they're tethered to each other. Right, yeah, which is uh, which a pain were, in the which, ass. Which was new and different for them, especially. Yeah, I didn't. Suction and underwater currents could sweep them into the unknown. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so cause yeah, they dealing, don't know anything. Well, because they're also dealing with uh, a siphon as well. Yes, there. and those who don't know so what they, the siphon they, is, is it's instead of the water pushing out, which is normally when you get into a cave diving, usually you'll go into a cave into flow, so it spits you out when you're done. And a siphon is the opposite, where you're going with the flow in, so it's very easy to get in. Very, uh, the the work is on the way out. And nitrogen narcosis the intoxication Cousteau called rapture of the depths which we know he really called the vastic grand yes i was going to say that but not with such <laughs> flair <laughs> okay so in the same way the group of mountain climbers would plan and launch an assault on a particular mountain the men planned their attack on the fountain of vaucluse it was to be done in a series of two-man teams the first would go as far as it could before returning the next team would use the farthest point of penetration as a springboard for its own effort subsequent teams would continue in this leapfrog manner until they reached their ultimate goal the hidden inner chamber the source of the fountain the men lowered a heavy piece of pig iron through the dark doorway of the spring into the shaft beyond and continued paying out line until the weight stopped at a depth of 55 feet. Jean Pinard, without a protective suit, made a free dive down to the weight and freed it, pushing it down the rocky slope to a depth of 90 feet before he surfaced, as red as a lobster and thoroughly chilled by the 54-degree temperature of the water. So do you know what pig iron is? <laughs> I mean, the term's thrown I, around there. I'm I, like, I, people I, gotta I, be going... Because I know I was like, what the hell is pig iron? Did you look it up? What is yeah. it? Yeah. Basically, it's uh, it's iron in like its first stage of going to be refined. So it's it's melted down, if that's the right word, and put into these little, they look like little, almost like loaves of bread kind of thing. And they resemble a, a little piglet is what the okay. iron workers you said. So this is, they've been having pig iron since like the 1600s. Okay. So it's like a, yeah. a, an old term. And it just refers to that basic unrefined iron ingot kind of thing. So it's just a chunk of very impure iron. Got it. Dumas and Cousteau were the first to descend. Both wore rubber diving suits to help insulate them against the cold. Dumas wore an Italian frogman suit, and Cousteau had an outfit that he made himself called a constant volume diving dress. It not only had a unique hood that trapped enough air for Cousteau to be able to communicate for short distances with another diver underwater, but he could control his buoyancy by inflating it with his own exhalations. The suit adjusting its volume to pressure changes through escape valves in the ankles and wrists. He wore this suit over heavy woolen underwear. So kind of like a dry suit. Yeah, like an early model oh, early model dry yeah. suit. Though so it's called constant volume instead of a variable volume. Yeah. Sounds nice. Yeah, sounds nice for the 40, cool. yeah. 1946. Sounds they should have nice stuck with that. Sounds nice for 2018. On their backs, each wore triple-cylinder aqualungs. The tanks containing 3,000 pounds per square inch of air from a recently acquired new air compressor. Dumas also carried two additional air cylinders, one mini aqualung on his belt for emergencies and another small tank for inflating his frogman suit to control his buoyancy. In addition to that, they had face masks, daggers, rubber fins, and two flashlights apiece, one to carry in the hand and a spare 
one on their belt. In anticipation that they might have to fight underwater currents, both divers wore extra heavy weight belts. Each man was encumbered with one further item. Dumas, considering the underwater mountaineering aspect of their dive, carried a mountaineer's climbing axe. And Cousteau, again relying on Nigiri's reported distance to the siphon, had coiled up 300 feet of line in three pieces around his left arm. Yes. Yes, he did. So he's pretty, I mean, I'm going to guess he's not very streamlined. That's well, why. they're very much not streamlined, right? I mean, they, they, <laughs> I'm being they've a smart said, ass. <laughs> they, well, they've already, over, they've already overstated that uh, they're, we're we're, they're overweight. We're overweight. Because they're worried about the current blowing them around. So, I mean, and he's t- got 300 feet of, of line just wrapped around his arm like you would like an extension cord. Just imagine when you're like you're you're yeah. you're you're wheeling the extension cord out from the the house out to the backyard to hook up the leaf blower or the you're hooking up some Christmas lights and you wheel you know winding that thing back up that the extension cord gets tangled yeah. and twisted and and turns into a mess. Yeah, I I would have to believe that was going through their mind it couldn't have been like oh this is we'll just bring the line although this is the mentality of a lot of people right now it's and just like even in the early more, days yeah well know? even in the early days of of the florida cave exploration that Sheck and the gang were doing i mean that was just taking a bunch of line wrapped around a coffee can you know you know that they were yeah those, even early, line, those yeah. early primitive days of reels before mm-hmm. the manufacturing got to where it was and the, and the realization of how quickly this line that we're using to find our way back can turn bad well, I'm curious how that British cave diving organization that was formed in the 30s, apparently that was developing equipment and protocol to a certain extent for cave diving. And you said they did reels. Did it? I well, know that communication was, that was, was around different. the same time. Well, so it was the 30s, early, I thought. Well, when they developed the, that Affluent system, yeah. the... Uh, that was the mid forties. So, okay, it was so this the same is fifty. So the thirties, they were their line was that yeah. surface supply because they were on hard hats. Yeah. Well, so I, they, I understand it completely. I'm just saying they, but they had stated that they were developing reels and whatnot in the forties when they got the scuba, and now we're in what year is this? Nineteen forty six. Oh, this is only forty six. Forty six. I yeah. thought that was fifty one or something. Well, forty six. Well, well, we'll go back maybe. Anyway, next a long year, story short is I don't believe they spoke to each other. Well, that's so, I. I'm pretty yeah. positive they didn't. Not that I'm criticizing. Yeah, all I'm getting you're at a, is uh, there's you. a little you're a bit. British. You're a British royal. You gonna talk to some Frenchies about how to do something? <laughs> the British royal. Brits, I don't know, they're pretty. But you fancy it's a just... spot of tea and a little talk <laughs> about how we go go cave diving. A spot of tea with my caves. I'm just trying to contrast what we have today with the communication yeah. and the internet and the ability to go back and forth with protocol, technique, equipment, and of course, a lot of it gets into just mudslinging arguments. But there is something to be said to the fact that we we can develop new equipment and technique and protocol. It's helpful this uh, communication if you can weed through the shit. Whereas back then, even though they're England and France, and I would have thought they might have heard of this cave diving group, you know, out of England that was already by that time well, 10 yeah, years old. Who knows? I mean, yeah, Jacques yeah, yeah. probably yeah. felt that he was the. No, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying, well, hmm, it's curious to me that nobody said, hey, I wonder if anybody else is doing cave diving. Well, you know, it, it, it seems like Jacques at the time had the, the, the feeling of, we got this. We got this. You might be you know, right. We don't, we don't need any help from anybody. We got, we're going to go in. <laughs> <laughs> and we are going to do this. Yeah. I've got 300 feet of line <laughs> on my arm, two two lights, a, a mountain climber's axe, and 
micro the micro aqualungs as they called them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So the length of the four hundred foot guideline that Cousteau and Dumas planned to follow down to the bottom of the cavern had been determined by Nagiri's measurements to the siphon. He said branched off from that main shaft. But what Cousteau and the others did not know at the time was that Nagiri's description of the various features inside the cavern was the result of his overworked imagination. Not only was Atanelli's zinc boat not there, as Nagiri reported it was, but Cousteau later came to suspect Negri of descending no farther than 50 feet, where he continued his dramatic broadcast describing things and events that never even existed. So you're saying he lied? He lied. He got in where nobody could see him anymore, and he just made up a story yes. of where he was going and what he was seeing and what he was doing. And I've never run into anybody like that. I was there, man. <laughs> yeah. It seems that, you know, that kind of thing, uh, I guess it's in any any chest-beating type of arena. Right. If that's why you do it. But I mean, anyway. I mean who's going who's gonna to question him? Which exactly. is why where I was going is, like, because you had mentioned earlier that yeah. you could never get a hold of him, remember? Well, yeah, 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 and that's that is exactly right. The, obviously, the reasoning you could never get a hold of him is because he didn't. He knew that he was going to be found out that he made up the whole thing. Right, and because Cousteau is going to come back with a completely different story. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. Wait a wait a dang minute. Arrête au moment. Okay. <laughs> Unaware of this, however, the men decided on the following the plan. Cousteau and Dumas, with a 30-foot rope tied between them, would follow the guideline down to the pig iron weight. They would then take the pig iron down with them, the guideline serving as the only means of communication between themselves and the surface, where Maurice Farg would be tending it. One tug meant that Farg was to tighten the rope to clear it of snags. Three tugs meant that he was to give them more line. Six tugs indicated an emergency, and he was to haul in the line as swiftly as possible. What's five tugs? You never use odd numbers. Well, what if his one of his was misread? <laughs> yeah, you, well, I thought you had a three tug in there, no? <laughs> you did, you did, and a one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you never used five. This is simple, basic cave diving protocol. Only even number. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't know. I and maybe it's all hindsight, but you're. I'm thinking if I were developing a pole pole system for, and this had already been developed. So the pole signals for communication between a tether and a diver. Long established, well, long gonna, time ago. They're going to find out and just that it doesn't that work, and that's why this is a bad why I'm pointing it out <laughs> because it just opens the door. Like, Once what? the divers reached the elbow in the tunnel and the siphon going upward, as Nagiri had described, they would set down the pig iron, attach the end of the Cousteau's segments of rope, and move up into the branching tunnel, paying out rope behind them. Eventually, they hoped to reach what they suspected would be a partially air-filled inner cavern from which came the spring's annual raging torrent. After thoroughly checking their equipment on the surface of the pool, Cousteau and Dumas swam down and entered the narrow black opening into the shaft. At one point in their descent, Dumas abruptly pulled back on the rope around Cousteau's weight. A shower of rocks swept past Cousteau, who, looking back, saw Dumas trying to break his rapid descent with his feet, while at the same time fumbling with the cylinder of compressed air that would inflate his now-flooded frogman suit. He had lost his ice axe. At 90 feet, Cousteau collected the pig iron weight, started downward again, but he forgot to signal back to Fark. All he could think of was getting down, getting through the job, getting through the frightening darkness to the bottom, and getting the job done. 
done. He kept moving his light around in circles, watching the beam when it hit the stone walls and wondering why there was no one else in the subway tunnel. So in his mind, he's thinking maybe, well, maybe he's not even recognizing that he's getting narked, but there's something more to it. Right. It's not just normal narcosis. So I think he's starting to recognize that, hey, what the... He's weirding out, yeah. Yeah, this is not the normal narcosis that uh, I get from depth. Abruptly, there were no walls to reflect the light. They were passing through a black void, and Cousteau's ears were aching. This seemed strange to him because he was always really good at equalizing the pressure on his ears. Never had an issue with that. Then, all of a sudden, his light reflected on a flat gravel bottom. There were no walls around them. Cousteau thought this must be the farthest Negri had come. Somewhere overhead was to be found the opening to the siphon. For the first time now, he noticed that he no longer had the coil of rope around his left arm. He had somehow lost it on the way down he just noticed yeah Sacre bleu. <laughs> so i you know as i read the story you're trying to picture what's going on you know kind of imagine these people just it seems like they're almost you know they're overweighted so they're just flying down of pure course there's chaos. no bcds it seems like or anything pure chaos going so, down. and they're trying to equalize as fast as they're going down and they've got all this equipment on and things dang you know it's hanging off of them and it's not small little danglies it's 300 feet line yeah a pickaxe a couple of sets of extra scuba what constant the? <laughs> constant forward falling crashing yeah. smashing tumbling down this tunnel Right, and in an overweighted status, so it's got to be just insane. Although I've Crabby. I've watched the regular divers do that with not all that gear, but just crash down through a slope underwater. He turned his flashlight over to Didi. In all his cumbersome gear, he looked to Cousteau like some ridiculous glowworm. Dumas was still fumbling with his small air cylinder, trying to inflate his flooded frogman suit. Cousteau shined his light on Dumas's depth gauge. It read 150 feet, but there was water in its dial. It had broken. Cousteau suspected they were at least 200 feet down and some 400 feet along the sloping shaft, somewhere in the black void above them. He knew they were both feeling the effects of narcosis, but Cousteau suspected Dumas was worse off than he. Their safety depended on their staying with the guideline. Cousteau clamped Dumas's hand onto it and shouted for him to stay where he was, that he was going to look for the siphon. Didi misunderstood him to mean that Cousteau had run out of air. He immediately started fumbling with his emergency aqualung, trying to get it off his belt. Meanwhile, Cousteau takes off and swims up looking for the roof of the cavern. Away from Didi, the rope tightens its tight around him, hooks him, yanks him back (laughs) downward. Swimming back down to Dumas, Cousteau found that his companion had let go of their guideline and was scudding backward along the floor of the cave, still trying to release his emergency cylinder off of his belt. Cousteau drew closer and realized that Dumas was only semi-conscious. When Cousteau touched him, he clamped a hand on his wrist like a drowning man's last gasp. Cousteau wrenched free, turning his light on Dumas's mask, where he saw his friend's eyes rolling wildly. Cousteau's own mind was unclear, but he remembered that they had to find the guideline. It was their only way back. So they are just wastedly drunk and intoxicated at at this depth. Yeah. just on the just poisoning the hell out of themselves and basically going into hallucinations. Yeah, but now I would point out too that it's not their normal narcosis, which is more uh, of an exuberant carelessness. You know, a, a yeah, happy this drunk. Is, this, this is, is a, a this paranoid, is a pan- panic, crazy delusion. drunk. Yeah, yeah. Versus you know us happy drunks. <laughs> Cousteau began moving back and forth over the bottom until his flashlight picked out the rusted mass of pig iron, and above it, the guideline trailing off into the blackness. 
tugging on the tether to Dumas, he drew the inert form up beside him. Dumas was in bad shape, semi-unconscious. He had lost his mouthpiece. He had swallowed water, getting some in his lungs. He was for, and then finally uh, recovering his mouthpiece, which he had forced his jaws to hold on to. After that, he was unable to do much more than weakly move his arms and legs. Cousteau, too, felt something more than stupefying effects of nitrogen narcosis. He was completely exhausted, but it was going to be up to him to get Didi and the rope up to the surface, a feat that he felt he totally was incapable of doing because of his waterlogged condition. Didi was probably 25 pounds negatively buoyant at the time. You know, just like picking up a 10-pound weight, mm-hmm. you know, from the bottom. Trying to swim it up. Trying to swim it up. Yeah, that's what you're trying Take to equate for the listeners. Is This is like, uh, you know, dive down to the bottom of the pool and pick up some weight. You don't have a BCD or anything. It's just your breath holding and try to swim it up. And then, you know, much less try to tread water with it. 10 pounds is, is doable but difficult. 20 15, pounds. 20 pounds is really... You're not going to tread water very well, and you might be able to get it up, but it's going to be a, a swim. It's going to be a, a tough one. 25. Yeah, 25 <laughs> and then pounds. Another five pounds Think about there. it, yeah. And being already completely exhausted. Yeah, yeah. I think the only, maybe, the, was there flow coming out? Maybe that was helping them. I yeah, there was flow coming out, so, oh, no, they were diving no, no, into no. a siphon. So, yeah, you're, you're battling a lot there. Grasping the guideline, he started to climb. Cousteau says, my first three handholds on the line were interpreted correctly by Fargs and as the signal to pay out more rope. So I think we're seeing the breakdown in this uh, signaling system here. Absolutely. (laughs) He did so with a will. I regretted with utter dismay the phenomenon of the rope slackening and made superhuman efforts to climb it. Fargs smartly fed me more rope when he felt my traction. It took an eternal minute for me to form the tactic that I should continue to haul down the rope until the end of it came into Fargs' hand, where he would never let go of that. I hauled in rope in dull glee. So he's just pulling, 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 pulling rope yes. hoping that you know that eventually Fargus is gonna, gonna get, get to the end and he's like oh yeah. that's it i can't let it go but little do we know well little do we and then just can you imagine this all the rope just like around like just a mess I'd be of, swearing a mess of line everywhere i already know how i, I am under, I, I mean, when things are i'm like in my the, rag going when the, when the real there's like there's like a foot of slack yeah, in, in the reel. You're like, yeah. oh my god, clean this up immediately. Right? Like hundreds of feet yeah. of just three line and four hundred feet of line. Yeah. Cousteau kept collecting rope, and Fargs kept feeding it to him, thinking that the divers were ascending the siphon toward the secret inner chamber. He's like, these guys are awesome. <laughs> They're pushing this cave, you know, back to Mexico. <laughs> when Fargs came to the end of the four hundred foot length of line. It did not stop him. He efficiently <laughs> tied on another length. Meanwhile, over 300 <laughs> feet. <laughs> this is awesome. Meanwhile, over 300 feet of loose rope piled up behind Cousteau, who stubbornly kept pulling in slack, certain that the end would have to come sometime, when at last he felt the knot where Fargs had tied on the extension. Son of a... <laughs> Don't! <laughs> Fargs! Fargs! Fargs, you... It's like Khan. It's like a William Shatner in Star Trek. Khan! Fargs! 
Cousteau dropped the line in disgust. He would have to climb the wall of the cavern hand over hand, foot by foot, dragging the helpless Dumas behind him. Man, this is just... I swear those pickaxes come in handy. (laughs) This is just intense craziness, eh? Yeah. As he began to climb, his head ached and he panted for air. His hands moved from one slippery outcropping to the next. Slowly, he made progress until suddenly his hand slipped and he fell backward with Dumas's dead weight, pulling him back down to the cavern floor. Cousteau's head throbbed unbearably now. A wave of nausea swept over him. He couldn't avoid vomiting. With his jaws locked on the mouthpiece, the contents of his stomach passed through an air vent no larger than a paperclip and through the demand regulator without blocking it. Nice. That's a good that was, regulator. That's a good heart. Those good old aqualungs were hearty in the day. Again. You know, because that used to be, and I, to, I know you're going to get started, but I remember, you know, when I would teach open waters, I, people would say, well, what if I get seasick? What do I do underwater? I go, well, you can just throw up through your regs, you know, because that was always yeah, a big, one of the big selling fun, yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. You could throw up right through our regulators. It's an awesome <laughs> thing. And this is how we know. That's why you buy the <laughs> Decor XP Pacer. <laughs> This is the best puking regulator on the market. (laughs) Never owned one, but yeah. I never fell for those. (laughs) After he turned back to the guideline and struggled to remember the signal, six tugs meant for Fargs to haul in the line. Cousteau tugged hard six times, but in the 400-foot crumbling rock passageway above him, the rope was snagged and slack in a dozen places. Dumas clung to him. Cousteau knew this was the end. Dumas was dead, and now his body was preventing Cousteau from saving his own life. He reached for the sheath of his knife to cut the rope, tying him to Didi. But even in his stupefied, chaotic thinking, Cousteau had flashes of reality. And before cutting Didi free, he would try once more to reach far. So in uh, in Jacques' book, you know, he... he- talks a little bit about what's going through his head because he's feeling bad you know oh i gotta i gotta cut off my main man here you know his best friend kind of thing and but you're holding me back i'm gonna die with you right right ass hat uh <laughs> i shouldn't say that but i mean that's the kind of stuff that goes through my mind when i'm like get that what the f- you doing ass hat <laughs> could be my best friend but you're still being an ass hat now i've called myself you know in my defense i've called myself an ass hat when i'm doing like you know, dragon shit. What the f*** you doing, asshat? And I'm wait, 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 myself, wait, so. wait, 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 wait. Yeah. I thought you were telling me pass that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, if, all, if that kid, that's like you, that's like you, you can think that because, you know, the, the asshat thing is mostly just for my enjoyment. Now I know. But now I know. I, <laughs> now you know <laughs> what I'm really saying. Asshat. Uh, one of my favorite words. I don't know who invented it, but it's a good one. But in uh, in Jacques' book, The Silent World, in the, in the chapter called Cave Diving, he says, Even in my incompetence, there was something that held the knife in its holster. Before I cut you off, Didi, I will try again to reach Farks. I took the line and repeated the distress signal again and again. Didi, I am doing all a man can do. I am dying too. He says, so he's really, you know, having this inner dialogue, this argument with himself, like, I got to, I got to go. I got to, it's been nice. And he's about ready to do it. But uh, anyway, back to your story. He grasped the line and tugged the distress signal. 400 feet away, Fargs was holding the line lightly in his fingertips, trying to sense what was happening below. Apparently the men were exploring something really enormous down there. But now something, a light tremor of the line made him wonder. Was that a signal? If he was wrong, what could the risk be but a reprimand from Cousteau? Farg's hand clamped onto the rope, and he began hauling. Deep in the cavern, Cousteau felt the guideline begin to move upward, so he let go of his knife and grasped it with both hands. Swiftly, the two men were hauled up, 
In less than a minute, Cousteau saw the faint green opening, the narrow door of the tunnel. Then they were through it and were being pulled into the pool. Fargs leaped into the water after an unconscious Dumas, while Tallier and Pinard waded in after Cousteau. On the beach, Dumas was violently sick to his stomach, but soon revived. Stripping off their wet gear, the men warmed themselves with the help of brandy and a fire. <laughs> That's how you did it in the old days. That's how we of, should do it in the new days. A little, bit of, little bit of CPR, a little bit of mouth to mouth. Sounds. I think I, I think I think I'm okay. I think uh, you need to exaggerate that. I think the vomiting was probably <laughs> the the recovery is CPR. Drink this brandy. Go warm up by the fire. We got another dive to do soon. Yeah. Do you have Do you have what Dumas said? No. What he said. Okay. So so he's he's throwing up. They're around the fire. Farts and the doctor. They work uh, work Dumas over, give him a checkup and everything. In about five minutes, he was back on his feet. And men. That's men were men. Men were men and ladies too. Anyway, I handed. It says right here. In five minutes, this is Jacques talking, right? He says, Farks and the doctor worked over Dumas. In five minutes, he was on his feet, standing by the fire. I handed him a bottle of brandy. He took a drink and said, I'm going down again. I wondered where Simone was. And this, this is where we wanted to talk about what Simone was doing. And Simone, of course, is Jacques' wife. So Jacques' wife was not happy about this, this whole dive, right? So Simone was there at the site, and the mayor who was the mayor of the town there in Van Cluse. So this is the mayor recounting what his wife did to Jacques when he came back up. So when your air bubbles stopped coming to the surface, your wife ran down the hill. She said she could not stand it. Poor Simone had raced to a cafe in Vaucluse. Is that right? Vaucluse. Vaucluse. And ordered the most powerful drink in the house. <laughs> a rumor monger raced through the village yelling that one of the divers was drowned. Simone cried, which one? What color was his mask? And red, said the harbinger, right? And Simone gasped with relief because Jacques was blue. But then she goes, oh, that's Dee Dee's. <laughs> and then she, so she was happy for like a split second. Yes, it's not Jacques. Oh, it's Dee Dee. Bummer. Long story short is she's out boozing it up. I can't take it. Give me to a bar. That's a, so, wife. That's a wife right there. I don't know. Those were the days. That afternoon, the second pair of divers prepared to go down. This time it was Tallier and Morandier. They decided to travel lighter than Cousteau and Dumas. According to the signals arranged by Farg, one tug meant that they were all right. Three tugs meant that they were to be hauled up immediately. The two divers decided between themselves that if either one shouted that they were to return to the surface at once. So they're simplifying the signals. <laughs> and they're like, anybody makes a noise, we're out of here. <laughs> This, uh, this uh, Fountain de Vaucluse has got more mystery than they had intended, I think. So, at 4.13 p.m., the two swam down the dark entrance. A guideline was tied to Tallier's belt. A 10-foot safety rope linked them together. Inside the dark tunnel, they turned on their lights and, like their companions, were surprised not to see the beams until they reflected off the rocks because the water was so, so clear. Side by side, they swam down the steep incline, following their agreed tactic of staying close to the roof of the passageway. Tallier kept his flashlight shining on the ceiling. Lacking a depth gauge, but possessing an uncanny ability to judge depth accurately, Tallier guessed they were down about 120 feet when he paused to analyze his sensations. 
following the roof of the cave this far gave the men a strange feeling of swimming upside down. But more than that, Talier was filled with a nervous apprehension that he was not that was not quite fear, but a feeling that he could not overcome. He guessed they were at the top of the water mass over the place where Cousteau and Dumas had trouble. Surely just a few yards further, and they would find the siphon shaft leading upward. Talier was tempted to strike out and look for it until he turned his light on Morandier and saw him trembling violently from the cold. Talier shouted to him, indicating that they should turn back and go up. He pulled on the guy line. It was slack preventing him from sending the signals to Fart. He fumbled for the guideline and had it in his hands, but he could not feel it. Morandier bumped him. His movements were awkward. Tallier thought Morandier was feeling the same kind of lethargy as he, that he was groggling, that he was groggily pushing Tallier toward the surface, trying to save him. As if in a dream, Tallier saw Morandier move around him, grasp the guideline and tug it three times and then fall back. Far above them, Farg's sensitive fingers felt the signal he responded by hauling the rope suddenly it tightened it was snagged tallier saw the rope move then stop he suspected that a loop had caught on a wall projection morandier seemed unaware of it as if he were in a trance tallier knew it was up to him to free the rope he caught the line in his hand and wound it several times around his wrist then he took out his knife and cut it for a moment he tried to think whether he should cut it above or below his wrist. Finally, he just cut somewhere. We're going up now, Talier later wrote in his diving log. I gripped the piece of cut rope with my right hand, but I have no hope anymore. The blackness that surrounds us had numbed my brain. I tell myself that when I open my hand, it will be two lives that I shall be throwing away with that torn bit of rope. Before long, I see a faint glimmer of light, and very high above us, very, very far away, surrounding a solid, dark, black, cut out like the map of an island three little windows of sky we rise up and up toward the beauty of god's light in passing i catch a sight of an unusual object it attracts my attention almost as if it were human being and i realize that it is the axe that dumas had dropped this morning they scraped through the opening and were hauled into the pool tallier staggered out behind him moriandier collapsed the others rushed to their assistance Tallier's left hand gripped his knife blade tightly. Blood flowed freely from the gash in his palm. Once again, the welcome warmth of fire and brandy rapidly revived the two men. The story where Tallier comes up and his hands bleeding is a lot more dramatic and to it than what he said. I mean, he comes up with a dagger upside down holding it in his hands, and then he was cut down to the bone, his fingers. He didn't even know he had done it. He hadn't felt it at all. So uh, Jacques is, is talking now. He says, We saw Tallier emerge in his white underwear. Morandier following through the underwater door. Tallier broke the surface, found a footing, and walked out of the water, erect and wild-eyed. In his right hand, he had held the dagger upside down. His fingers were bitten to the bone by the blade, and blood flowed down his sodden woolens, which is his underwear, his uh, undergarments, his dry suit. He didn't even feel it. Anyway, that's, that's his state when he walks out of the water in kind of a stupor, not even knowing he's holding a dagger upside by down the blade, blade. <laughs> yeah, and it's cut into his hand. So after that, one more group of divers went down. Pinard, Cousteau, and Dumas again. 
but they advanced no further than the triangle rock that Otanelli had described at 50 feet. They mapped out the mouth of the fountain, and that night they left Vaucluse. And on the drive back... So Simone, Didi, and I drove back to Toulon that night. Thinking hard, despite fatigue and headache, long silences were spaced by occasional suggestions. Didi said... Narcotic effects aren't the only cause of diving accidents. There are social and subjective fears. And then there's the air you breathe. And that's when uh, I jumped at the idea. The air you breathe, I said. Let's run a lab test on the air left in the lungs. So Jacques is, you know, it's just hitting them that all of this unusual narcotic effect that isn't their normal rapture of the depths. Long story short is the nitrogen narcosis that they're normally accustomed to, this was completely different. So they're trying to figure out why. And then it hits them. We have a new compressor. And he watched the diesel fumes be sucked into the compressor. Maybe it wasn't known, you know, back he, then. Yeah, because he didn't realize it. Yeah. And then that next morning, uh, they took the tanks into uh, to a lab to have them analyzed. And the results showed that the air was contaminated with deadly levels of, car- of one carbon monoxide. Yeah, showed one two thousandth of carbon monoxide. So at a depth of 160 feet, which is what they were guesstimating, I guess. The effect of CO is sixfold. Yeah, he says uh, that the, the depth that they were diving, the effects of carbon monoxide poisoning, which prevents oxygen from being absorbed into the bloodstream, would kill a man in 20 minutes. So further expeditions were made to the caves. It taught us much about the problems of cave diving. We still had not gone through the siphon or mechanism that shot the water earthward. But finally, in 1948, while most of us were away on the Bathyscaphe expedition, three members of the group finally achieved the goal. So Alanat, Lieutenant Jean Jean Alanat, Dr. F. Davia, and CPO Jean Pinard. So those three guys that were on the original expedition went back, and this time they, uh, they were assisted by the Army Corps of Engineers. And the spring of Vitarellis near Gramat was the object of the large cave expedition. So that's in that area there. Anyway, they go down, they have to go down underground 390 feet just to get to the surface of the water. Okay. And then they have to put on a, uh, a full, full-scale dry cave expedition to get into it. So they're coming in it from another angle, and then they're going to send divers in. And they, eventually, in that, that expedition, they found where the underwater dry area, where they dove in and they found where the water's coming from, or the surge is coming from. So later, later they named that big, dark, black room where Cousteau and Dumas like, dropped into in 200-some feet down, and they had like all their crazy difficulty... Cousteau and Dumas, the enormous cavern that appeared to have no walls or no ceiling. Appropriately, they ended up naming that the Great Hall of Night. Man, super awesome, crazy story, though, eh? Yeah, just goes to show you, again, whenever we look at Jacques' stuff, and as well as any of those early divers, just uh, trying to pave the way, if you will, uh, it was a hairy situation it was uh, it was a lot more scary than it is you know of course now it's not really scary at all no i mean just absolutely remarkable the the intensity of of that description of that dive going in really having no clue i mean and in the 40s i'm sure these guys are just in the back of their minds are sea monsters and you know especially wasted on carbon uh (laughs) monoxide poisoning of just like what is like coming at and and trying to uh trying to just kill and destroy them while they're down there very exciting stuff and once again good old jockey uh perseveres muscles through and and 
comes up with some amazing stories and amazing tales and really cool adventures. So that kind of concludes our little uh, cave diving month. I was going to say it's kind of cool how we, uh, we're ending at the beginning of cave diving to a certain extent. I mean, we went we went backwards a little bit with uh, with old Sheck there, and but he is at the root of you know cave diving protocol, establishment of cave diving protocol, the safety, the accident analysis stuff that we do. Right, because in a lot of his early stuff were dives not much different, different yeah. than this Cousteau yeah. one and but he had this innate draw to it where Cousteau it was one of the dives he was doing was this cave yeah. dive where I don't think he was where, really where, digging it right whereas know. actually it was digging this it. is my yeah. life I, I want to know everything about these yeah. and he realized well, they can't keep going like this yeah yeah <laughs> you've got to figure a way to do this that's smart well, that's when you start using your brain instead of your brawn. You know, it's a, it's a combination of both, but you should lead with the brain, I think. Right, and yeah. then that was the, the cool thing about a couple of these stories was the early days of where the only choice they had was the brawn. So this was this was fun. This was Hence a, this the, was a, the gasoline fires and uh, brandy and brandy. <laughs> and uh, and if your wife is worried about you, she's just gonna she's gonna take off to the local pub. On that note, I think I'm gonna have to get me a glass of brandy here. This is a, this was a good this was a great dive. It was a fine dive. Well, hey, let's uh, let's sign these logbooks, grab a glass of brandy, warm up by the fire, and uh, we will see you guys next week. Safe diving, folks. I got, uh, got this uh, nice uh, Mont Blanc pen I'm signing with here today. Oh, nice. Just, just for the occasion. Yeah. French pens for the French stories. Au revoir, mes amis. Buenos nachos. I need you for commentary here. I <laughs> yeah, but you cut me short when I do comment. <laughs> Get me, go rumble up, wrestle up some pig iron, boy. We're gonna have breakfast.